Miami bass is, is hip hop from the South, from the land of Dade County. And it's, it's known for extremely like upbeat dance rhythm and bass. If you had to make a sort of, not generic, but if you had to make a common bass beat with your mouth, what would the beat sound like? Like boom, 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 boom. Oh, I do it. It's like based on the, the Goombay beat from the Bahamas. It's like. It's like that, yeah. The polyrhythm is a polyrhythm. The Caribbean polyrhythm mixed with American funk and soul. That's what you would hear in the garbage cans or in the in school lunchroom. It's a, it's a festival beat. And yeah, yeah, it sounds like a party, exactly. The sound of Miami is the sound of a city surrounded by islands. We're basically a melting pot of Haitians, Jamaicans, Bahamians, Cubans, Puerto Ricans. And, and that's what it is, because we that's what we are. So when we went to school, Bahamians and Haitians at the time, when Duvalier was trying to take over Haiti and mistreating the Zoes, they, they worked their way to Miami as well. And the Jamaicans had their section, and it was like, we all went to school together. Over the years, people have come from all these places to live in Miami. When they came, they brought their beats with them. And those beats, they became the backbone of Miami bass. The way I would describe Miami bass is Kungas, Tom Toms, combination of reggae bass and calypso, with the tempo going about 120 to 130 beats a minute. Uh, 808, 909, bass kicks. Cowbell, the infamous cowbell. <laughs> That's it, some hi-hats, a nice snap and snare. You know, I got a snap, a pop. And there's one final ingredient, the thing that really sets this music apart from everything else. Deep, booming bass. Yeah, bass, bro. I love that shit. That's good. That's good. Because it's not really Miami bass, unless it knocks hard. The beats getting inside of your brain or past your brain inside of your soul or whatever is in there and just makes you fucking want to funk out, have fun. A lot of people consider Two Live Crews Throw the D to be the first true bass record. What Rapper's Delight was to hip-hop, Throw the D was to Miami bass. When the group dropped that single in 86, they captured the sound of Miami and put it on wax. But outside of the 305, hardly anyone had heard of the bass scene or the Two Live Crew. That was all about to change. Because the Two Live Crew were gonna take this new sound and add something of their own. Lyrics so outrageous and so dirty that they permanently changed the hip hop landscape. And Luke Campbell, the king of the pack jam, he was gonna take this explosive new sound and he was gonna sell it to the world. I'm Brandon Jenkins, and on this episode of Mogul, hip-hop gets nasty.
When Throw the D started to pop off, the two live crew were a duo. There was Mr. Mix on the decks, crafting the beats and producing the records. And there was Fresh Cut Ice on the mic, spitting rhymes. But Mr. Mix figured that the band could be even better if they added an additional MC. And he knew just the right person. Marquis from the two live crew, Dade County's old school early edition, Triple OG of the rap game official. That's a cool intro. You all follow me on Instagram, Brother Marquise, two live crew, all one word, Mark Demetrius on Facebook. Brother Marquise had met Mr. Mix out in Cali a few years earlier. They hit it off. And Mix told Marquise that if he ever needed another rapper, he'd hit him up. It's kind of marketable, look, not bad to look at, I think, and I could rhyme. With Marquise on board, the two live crew's lineup was complete. So they all packed up their shit and moved across the country to the place where their music was as hot as the weather, Miami. Luke Campbell had made the crew a hit at the Pack Jam, and now he had offered to manage the group. He told them that once they got to Miami, he'd help get them a record deal. He also told them he'd set them up with the place to live. I'm gonna tell you how crazy it was. We were living at his girlfriend's house that he was shacking up with mom's house. <laughs> Whoa. The mom, the daughter, Luke's living with her. He done convinced them to allow me, Marquise, and Chris to live there at the house until he could get an apartment for us. We was there for a month. One of the most surprising things about this story is that none of the architects of the Miami Bay sound were actually from Miami. They were all outsiders. But as soon as they got there, they were ready to dive in. They wanted to make music that sounded and felt like their new home. Hot town, summertime, you know, the whole atmosphere just say, that says uh, party and, and sex, you know what I mean? Dancing, shaking your ass and sex. Shortly after moving to Miami, the group started to work on a song called Move Something. It would take all the things they were seeing and hearing and doing in Miami and stir them into a thumping bass track. First came the drum loop. Mr. Mix found that at a high school football game. See, Miami's renowned for its high school marching bands. They're big, they're loud, and they're exciting to watch. That inspired Mr. Mix. One of the high schools down there had a breakdown in their um, drumline routine, and they would say, move something, and then they would go into some kind of drum solo thing, move something. Mix took that chant, and it became the foundation for the song Move Something. but they needed something else to really make it pop. Since the early days, when he was spinning in Air Force barracks, Mr. Mix had been playing around with the idea of using samples from X-rated comedy records. Shit like this. You know, they got a new douche powder out now. This is made out of alum, LSD, <laughs> and Kentucky Colonel Sanders chicken fat. It makes your pussy up tight and out of sight and finger-licking good. These albums from comedians like LaWanda Page and Richard Pryor were incredibly raunchy. 
and Mix figured that sort of stuff would play well with a Miami crowd. Seeing how sexualized the, the market was, I knew that I could put those parts and pieces in and it would be funny and be raw and all of that stuff based on how those people was acting in Miami. Just say, wow, these motherfuckers is crazy down there. Florida made me kind of see that those records was real life. One night, Mix was listening to a skit by LaWanda Page and Skillet Leroy. And that's where he found the perfect sample for Move Something. You know, there's a sample, drop your drawers and open your legs up wide. So um, that's going through the record, going through the record. So Mix had the beat, he had the hook. Now the song needed lyrics. That was where Marquise and Ice came in. As soon as they heard the song, they knew their rhymes had to be dirty. And they swung for the fences. I've been wanting to tell you this for a while. I like your fake blue eyes and your whole style. So let's go for a walk through the park. You can suck my dick in the dark and just do what I ask. Bitch, bend over. Let me ride your backside like dogs do each other. I know that you're with it, so don't start fighting. I don't want to be your man. I want to move something. The way Move Something was made, that was pretty much the two Love Crews formula. They'd find a sample or something that inspired them. Mix would craft the beats, and then Ice and Marquise would lay down their vocals and mine the English language for words that rhyme with dick. And it was these dirty rhymes that made the two live crews stand out. These days, we take it for granted that sex plays a big part in hip-hop. We all know Kaya's my neck, my back. We've all seen Nelly swiping a credit card down a dancer's ass crack in the tip drill video. But back in the late 80s, when two live crew were starting out, this stuff felt really new. Mix, Marquise, and Ice were the flag bearers. Bored, flying the freak flag. And we're the only rappers out here talking, talking really, really crazy when it comes to sex. Yeah, nobody else is doing it. What they did was they went fully uncensored. This is Jacob Cattell. Jacob's a journalist. You heard him at the start of the episode explaining Miami bass. They started talking about fucking, and they did so with no remorse. Like, they put it out there all the way, because that's normal. That's what real people do in real life. The two live crew had their product, booming bass and endless rhymes about screwing. But now they needed to get their music out there. And that's where Luke Campbell comes in. Luke liked what he was hearing and thought it would appeal to a much bigger audience than just the kids at the Pack Jam. He was ready to shoot this shit into the stratosphere. After the break, Luke Campbell proves the oldest saying in the world, sex sells. Girls would give me a blowjob and, and... On stage? Yeah, I've gotten a blowjob on stage before. When Luke first started working with the two live crew, he'd never managed anyone before. He didn't really know what he was doing. But one thing was clear. He had to get the band a record deal. In Miami back in those days, there weren't a lot of places to pitch a rap record. Most hip-hop at the time was coming out of New York. There's no such thing as hip-hop in the South. No Atlanta, no Memphis, no Dallas. None of that. And the record labels that did exist in Miami at the time were all about a smoother sound. They were making their money off dance music and R&B and funk. Luke went from one label's office to another, trying to sell them on the two live crew sound, the sound of Miami bass. Nobody wanted to do a deal. Nobody had the faith. And in, in Southern hip-hop, so 
You know, it was like, what the fuck are they doing? Who are these guys? But Luke had faith in Southern hip-hop. So much faith that he decided to use his own money to start a record label to get the two live crews music out. He called it Luke Skywalker Records. It was the first hip-hop label in the South. Skywalker Records started off small and scrappy. Here's Brother Marquise. We were independent at that time. I'm talking about manufacturing, distribution. In the early days, Luke couldn't afford to hire anyone to work for the label. So Luke and the two live crew did everything themselves. I would go to the pressing plant and help put wax in the sleeves and cassettes into cassette covers, shit like that. Going to pick up records and shipping them out. We were doing that. We were doing that on a daily basis in the beginning at one time. Because Luke Records didn't have an office yet, they stored the records anywhere they could. Luke's car was piled with vinyl so high, he couldn't see out the back. And the apartments where the members of the two live crew lived were flooded with copies of their records. Under the beds, in the bathtub, even in the oven. Literally everywhere. Luke took his own money and got the record, you know, first initial records pressed up and we were selling the records on um, COD from out of the back of his mom's um, house. If these guys were starting out now, they could just upload their music to SoundCloud or post it on YouTube. But back then, they were posting up in the park and at the pack jam, hustling records out the back of Luke's Honda. And it was kind of working. The records were selling and money started coming in. And I was like, okay, well, I like how this goes. I like the debt business more, more, more than selling weed. You know, uh, so I was like, okay, I'm selling weed. Shit, let me stop selling weed. I'm going to start selling records. And I became the record entrepreneur versus the weed entrepreneur. <laughs> but Luke had bigger plans, and he wanted bigger checks. It wasn't enough for him to have a hit at the Pac Jam, or even a hit in Miami. He wanted to make the two live crew superstars. So he started dreaming up new ways to market their music. Luke has always been a masterful salesperson. This is Dara Cook. Dara's a writer and an executive at VH1. A few years back, she worked on an audiobook with Luke. Luke told her how he used tricks he learned from his party promoter days to sell two live crew records. One thing that Luke did early on was that Luke didn't have a traditional street team. What Luke would do is get young people who were itching to come to his clubs and come to his parties to do this work for him for free by giving these people Luke Records jackets, which would get them immediate free entry into his parties. And in return for that, these young people were going out into other clubs and skating rinks, et cetera, and being ambassadors of Luke Records throughout the city of Miami. And that's smart. You use one, one thing that you have to leverage something else. It's basically like an Instagram influencer campaign you see today. Luke made young people feel special by giving them merch and entry to parties. And in return, they'd spread the gospel of the two live crew. It was clout before people were calling it clout. And these tactics, they seem to be working. The two live crew's first full album, Two Live Is What We Are, went gold and Move Something made the Billboard Hot 100. Luke started to sign more artists, and he set up an official office in a fancy new high-rise building. No more records filling up the bathtub. Luke had proved that the South could have a hip-hop record label. 
it's really what gets the hip-hop industry going outside of New York and L.A. Music journalist Jesse Serwer points to this as a real beginning of the Southern hip-hop scene. Even though there were artists from other places, you really had to go through somebody in New York or L.A. to, to get on. And, that, you know, Luke starts serving this market that the record labels in New York and the artists in New York aren't serving, this, like, really club-oriented music. But to sell even more records, the crew needed to make sure their music was spreading beyond the South. The best way to do that? Go on tour. Take the two-life crew experience on the road. So Luke started booking the band shows all over the U.S. But there was a problem with this plan. You got to remember, these guys were in the military. When I looked at this show, I was like, man, this, this shit is a little boring here. What happened is, is that Marquise and Chris didn't have no stage charisma. They didn't have no stage charm. They could do the records, but when it came between, you know, entertaining the audience before the next record came on, they was like boxes of rocks. They, you know, had the personality of a turnip. They didn't know how to rock the crowd or keep the crowd motivated. This was a huge problem. Because if people didn't like your shows, they were not going to buy your record. You could forget it. So shows was like do or die action then. You know, fuck what you're getting paid for being up there. If you don't do a good show or you get booed, you ain't going to be able to sell no records in that market. Night after night, Luke watched a crew do a lukewarm performance in front of an indifferent crowd. And Luke is standing, you know, at that time, Luke, like I say, he was managing the situation. He was on the side of the stage. He wasn't a part of the show or anything. But he was looking at how Mark and Chris was doing what they were doing on stage. And he said, man, these motherfuckers is bombing. I can't allow this to happen. So I got with Mr. Mix and say, look, you know, let's add some of the call and response into the actual show. And at the end of the day, it'll be a lot more entertaining. He started going out and uh, doing the same thing that he would do. Like if he was DJing, he would just do it from the front of the stage. If you believe in having sex in hell, yeah. Hell yeah. If you believe in having sex in hell, fuck yeah. Hell, yeah. When I say Talking shit to the audience, this, that, and other. That's how it started. Luke wasn't exactly what you'd call a rapper at the time, but his stage presence was electric. And so what starts as Luke joining the crew on stage as a hype man from time to time soon becomes Luke, member of the two live crew. Well, Luke, let him tell it. He'll always say that he didn't want to be a member of the group or be in the record business. Uh, I didn't originally want to be in the group at all. I just wanted to help these guys, um, you know, with a record deal. (laughs) Yep. Regardless of his plan, Luke was now a part of the group, up on stage with a turn up and a rock. And when he got on the mic, he became one of the first label bosses to appear on hip-hop records, way before Diddy and Birdman and Master P did it. And there were more innovations to come, because Luke had another trick up his sleeve something that would make two live cruise shows unforgettable. He's gone. Touchdown, Dallas. Here's Rock Cook again. This is someone who grew up in Miami, grew up in, in football country, and grew up in an area that has probably produced more NFL players per capita than any other place in the country. Luke was looking at the NFL, and Luke was looking at 
the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders and how those cheerleaders were ambassadors, not just for the Cowboys, America's team. And Luke was inspired by the success that the Cowboys had with the cheerleaders. So Luke decided to find his very own cheerleaders, women who would come to stand as avatars for the two live crew. This was my ticket to do what I enjoy, dance, be around music, and travel. It was a win-win for me. (laughs) It was a no-brainer. And get paid. (laughs) Yeah, checks all the boxes. (laughs) You know what I mean? This is DJ Nisi D. You heard from Nisi in the last episode. She moved to Miami as a teenager, used to go to the Pac Jam, and loved to dance more than anything. When Nisi graduated from college, she started working a corporate gig to pay the bills. Then one day, she got a call from a friend who knew Luke. I remember the call, and she said, hey, so, you know, they Luke looked for some dancers, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. You're interested? I was like, sure, yeah. I was kind of over the advertising job. She, The call came at the right time. Let's just say that. <laughs> I was like, I quit. <laughs> now all the elements were in place. The band had a solid set list. Luke was using his charisma and stage presence to pump up the audience. And they had a group of dancers who would come to redefine the hip-hop aesthetic. And if you were at one of those stage shows, this is what you could expect to see. So the way the show would start off, Luke would go out there first. Come out with the chants and, and the crowd would really, he would really get the crowd going. We would be in place. The lights come on and the beat drops. And then I, he would go right into my turntable show and he's saying, you know, do this, do this, do that, do that. And so I'm doing this and doing this and doing that on the turntables. And then he would, you know, bring on the, uh, the rest of the guys along with the dancers. You know, we start dancing, you know. And ding, ding, ow, come on, baby, ding, ding. you know, and all that stuff, you know, hey, and it, it starts from there. The crowd's going bananas, and the guys come on out, and they're doing their thing. Fresh Kid Ice would be walking and, you know, interacting. He was not one that was a extroverted, animated, physical person. Like, you understand what I'm saying? He was a more reserved uh, type energy. Marquise is spitting his lyrics, and he may be walking from one side of the stage to the other, interacting with the crowd, looking out into the crowd. Mix is, you know, on them tables, you know, on one or two, is cutting it up. Come on, whatever, right? But the thing that set these shows apart from other hip-hop performances was really the dancers. Just at that point... Just having the girls that were there, you know, with their half-naked and ass hanging out and everything, that totally blew everybody off the map because no other rappers had girls that were dancing like ours. The thing about us is that there was nobody that had a show like that. You know, Hammer hadn't even showed up yet. You know what I mean? So we're the only ones that had, you know, female dancers like that on stage. Very... Um, healthy black women with these rumps that you still can't buy. They still can't make them like a two-live crew ass, right? 
You know, these girls was naturally built that way. You know, Luke handpicked the, the finest and the best back then. Like, you know, they was curved. They didn't buy these bodies, you know. You look at the girls today, all of them look like miso horny dancers now. Yeah, that raised some eyebrows, you know. That raised some eyebrows because that was not what was happening in hip-hop at that time. The Two Live Crew shows started to get a reputation as a place where wild shit happened on stage. But it wasn't just because of the dancers and their skin-tight outfits. The crew would also invite audience members, usually attractive young women, to join them in the spotlight. Is there any motherfucking virgins out here? No. This is a recording of a Two Live Crew show at a nightclub. Luke is calling for all the virgins in the audience to come up on stage. Then he says, where the fine women at? And he spots a woman in the crowd and says, bring your slick ass up here. People that, you know, would come up on stage and dance with, you know, Luke and um, Marquise. Marquise would pick them up a lot of times and run across the stage and then slam them on the ground and dry humping them on stage and the crowd would go wild. You know, it was just all kind of stuff. You you never knew what would happen at one of our shows because some of the shows was in coliseums and some of the shows was in nightclubs. The nightclub stuff was when the real wild stuff would happen. Yeah. Girls would get naked and, you know, and sometimes you might try to give you a blowjob. And, and, on stage? Yeah, I've gotten a blowjob on stage before. I can't do any of that on stage now. They would hashtag Me Too movement all over my black ass. <laughs> I watched a lot of footage of old two live crew shows. And Marquise is right. The shit he pulled back then might not fly today. And rightfully so. But the way two live crew represented women at their shows, the dancers in skin-tight outfits, the raunchy dance moves, the band members getting head on stage, images like that will go on to rule hip-hop for decades. The women who danced with Luke, they became the blueprint for the modern-day video vixen, the ride-or-die girls you see dancing in the background behind rappers. Take Jay-Z's Big Pimpin' video. That's kind of like the gold standard for flashy, expensive hip-hop videos. You got Jay and Dame Dash on a yacht with about 30 women in bikinis dancing behind them. And you see Dame pouring liquor on the women's gyrating bodies. The women were treated like props, another status symbol to go along with the sports cars and the jewelry. In these kinds of videos, they became the industry standard. So much so that seeing half-naked women dancing in rap videos became a cliche. I say all this to say, the two live crew stage shows helped set a precedent for how women were expected to look and act in hip-hop. That's a complicated legacy, one that comes with a lot of baggage. To have women around men, mostly as naked as possible, dancing, gyrating, performing sexual illusions, is a staple in hip-hop videos. This is Trisha Rose. Trisha's a professor at Brown University, and she specializes in Black culture. And when she looks at the two live crew stage shows, she sees an imbalance of power. The men did not get naked. We didn't see the crack of their behind, right? So <laughs> if this is just all about sexual performance and freedom, why do the most powerful people on the stage stay dressed? In the 80s, expectations about what hip-hop was going to be were just taking shape. And since then, 
women who want to make a name for themselves in hip-hop have had to deal with those expectations. I just think that the role of women in hip-hop has been so profoundly marginalized and devalued across the board. You know, there were way more women in hip-hop at a visible level in 1986 than there are today. And while there's a couple and they're very popular, they're basically hypersexualized performances of, of female MCs are the only models that exist. So I think some of this can be traced to that moment of the kind of recognition of this possibility in the marketplace. The Two Live crew put sex front and center in everything they did. And they were rewarded for that. They got more popular. They sold more records. But they also found themselves in the crosshairs of one of the most powerful Christian conservative organizations in America. Coming up on Mogul, the two live crew have to answer to their critics. Well, I don't even consider this art. I mean, he he's rapping, not singing, number one. Um, well, but that's your opinion. Uh, yeah, well, it's rap. Isn't it called rap? It's, it's, an art. it's a song? brand new kind of music. Yeah. And it's for... <laughs> yes, yes. Can't wait for next week's episode to drop? No problem. You can stream the entire season now exclusively on Spotify. Search for Mogul inside the Spotify app and hit the follow button. So we're going to shake things up a little here and get some help with the credits. Here's my boy, Jacob Cattell. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Hey, shout out to his. What's your guys' names again? What's your name? Gimmel Media, or our personal. Yeah. Matthew. Shout out to Matthew. That's Matt Nelson, our senior producer. Uh, Brandon. Shout out to Brandon. That's me, Brandon Jenkins. I'm your host. Matt. Matt. That's Wallace Mack. He's a producer. I look forward to seeing this and here. Let the world know, man, because true stories are always good stories. And I look forward to seeing what you guys do. And it's cool. Honored to be here. And thanks a lot. A few other people worked on the show, too. There's our other producer, Saeed Tijan Thomas. We also had help from Gabby Bulgarelli. Our editors are Lynn Levy, Caitlin Kenny, and Chris Morrow. Sound design and mixing by Haley Shaw. Music supervision by Matthew Boll and Liz Fulton. This episode was scored by Nana Quibena. Theme music and additional scoring by So Wiley. Our credits music is by Prince Paul and Don Newkirk. Fact checking by Saraya Shockley. You can follow us on Twitter for all the latest news and a behind the scenes look at the making of the show. Our handle is at Mogul. Peace. Peace.